Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, October 18th, 2021. I'm John Bodhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Go to commentary.org slash roast21. That's commentary.org slash roast21 to find out about our November 22nd, 11th annual commentary roast. This one of Rabbi Mayor Soloveitchik. Following in the footsteps of Dick Cheney, Joe Lieberman, Norman Podhoritz, Midge Dechter, Jonah Goldberg, Ben Shapiro, Roger Hertog, and I know I'm insulting somebody by forgetting somebody, uh, Charles Krauthammer. Um, uh, this is a great event in New York, The our, our big annual fundraiser, uh, very different from any other fundraiser you've ever been to because it's funny, high-spirited, irreverent, off-the-record uh, and you will be together for the first time in almost two years with hundreds of people who agree with you and who who share your love of commentary and your hatred of wokeness and your and your love of America and the United States and the West and Israel and it's a great room to be in. It's a great occasion to join us. Uh, you get fed, you get drinks, uh, and all but the cost of the meal is tax deductible. It ain't a cheap ticket, but let's face it, you people, you are people who have enjoyed the American dream and can give us some money because you know that we are a 501c3 nonprofit and we need your support to keep the lights on. We want you to subscribe and we would love you to join us November 22nd for the roast of Mayor Soloveitchik commentary.org slash roast 21 or email us at roast at commentary.org appearing at that roast in the first ever roast appearance of the commentary podcast crew will be executive editor abe greenwald hi abe hi john senior writer christine rosen hi christine hi john and associate editor noah rothman hi noah hi john so the news came this morning tragic sad news of the passing of Colin Powell uh, at the age of 84 from complications relating to COVID. Um, I was going back through Powell's autobiography, An American Journey, uh, just before the podcast, um, which as a memoir, as a sort of policy memoir and a sort of accounting of his, of his career, um, is not that impressive a book, but the opening, which is about his childhood and his growing up uh, in the South Bronx, is one of the most charming American memoirs uh, of a of a prominent person that I that I know of, and I want to talk about some of that later. But um, you know, Yuval Levin says that the uh, the heart of what we call American conservatism is gratitude. And the remarkable thing about Colin Powell, the tone in his book, is the sense of gratitude that he displays for having been born an American, his parents having made this journey, his father literally coming from Jamaica on a banana boat to the United States, uh, having him growing up in, in New York in the 1950s, um, and uh, sort of uh, drinking deep from the well of a of a of a very expanding and expansive uh, American understanding of who can benefit from 
being part and parcel of this country. So I want to talk about that a little later. But of course, why we're talking about Colin Powell is his unprecedented career, um, you know, a uh, uh, man who uh, saved three of his comrades as a result of a helicopter crash in Vietnam when he was a a lieutenant, somebody who had to um, help uh, clean up his regiment, which was involved before he joined it in the My Lai massacre. Um, moving on to this astonishingly rapid rise as a kind of political general, political figure uh, in in Washington to the extent that before his 50th birthday, he was national security advisor to, to Ronald Reagan. Uh, and then, of course, became chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff during the first uh, Gulf War and uh, 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 almost unprecedentedly beloved national figure on all sides of the political spectrum um much brand much bandied about much brooded about a possible presidential contender in 1996 uh and then of course becoming secretary of state when george w bush became president and capping his career with an event that he considered extraordinarily unfortunate uh, later on, which was his um, speech at the United Nations, uh, laying out the case using now discredited or soon to be discredited intelligence information uh, relating to why we needed to go to war uh, in Iraq. Uh, Powell was uh, in his own person uh, and as a figure of rectitude and good humor and seriousness and uh, control, uh, somebody who was just endlessly admirable, but his record as a public figure, let's say, I think is up for up for some debate. So while we celebrate him, I think we should also just talk about what that legacy, whether whether he has a legacy really, or whether he was just somebody who reflected the kind of conventional wisdom of the moment whenever he was at that moment. Abe, where where do you come out on Powell? Well, I don't think it's the case that all great men or all great Americans have to do revolutionary things um, in order to be great. Um, he 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 served his country extraordinarily well uh, in in many capacities. Uh, straight on up through the hierarchy, you know, you mentioned that you know he was he was the national when he was made national security advisor. He was not only the, the first African American national security; he was also the youngest um, uh, ever to be appointed uh, national security advisor. The 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 what he himself called the stain on his record, and what he said would be in his obituary uh, prominently was was his his showing at the United Nations. Um, his making the case that Saddam Hussein uh, was was um, building or um, had biological weapons, and this, of course, proved not to be the case. Um, you know, as those uh, those of us who were in support of the administration's decision to go into Iraq then know and have been saying over and over again, this was not a malicious lie. Um, this was faulty intelligence. 
um, which is, of course, horrible. Uh, but but Colin Powell, at, 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 as of that time, certainly once the war in Iraq went bad, was treated as uh, being among those, very prominently among those, who made um, a dishonest case for going into Iraq, which was not the truth. Now, he also, he also, I think, out of that whole sort of group of those who were villainized in regard to going into Iraq, obviously, George W. Bush, uh, Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, I don't even Paul Wolfowitz, whomever, the, the, all the all the all the people that came to be um, sort of despised by the left over the over the Iraq War. Um, I think Powell kind of rehabilitated himself among liberals to to a, a fairly uh, strong degree by first um, endorsing Barack Obama over John McCain. No, no, and no. Then, no, over Romney. No, over McCain. Yeah. Wait, did he? I thought yes. Oh, he did. Okay, and he, I'm sorry. He, he, and he even said, and he even said that uh, you know he thought McCain's attacks on Obama were um, were uh, sort of uh, below the belt or 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 um, you know un- unbecoming. And then continuing, which is what, which is what I was going to say. Then continuing to to endorse Obama, then Hillary Clinton, uh, and then uh, Joe Biden. And, and right. I think, I'm, I'm sorry. That's right. Yeah. No, but then he also said that it was really because of it was because of uh, Sarah Palin that he that Obama was a transformational figure and he didn't like Sarah Palin. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. So my only point is that I think he, he did in the end sort of, you know, come out um, uh, having done his public image uh, some good. Not I'm not accusing him of having made those decisions for that purpose, but um, I think he he was. He ended up more broadly beloved than uh, the other people that he had been uh, villainized with at the time. I mean, to be fair to him, he did say he never disavowed the Iraq war. And he did say, I think four years later, he said, I have never said that I think that it was a mistake to go into Iraq. I still support the decision to go into Iraq. He said that he was... Uh, he was embarrassed, let's say, by the by the speech that he had given, and that he had been basically ill served by the intelligence community that had supplied him with um, with all this information. Um, the thing about Powell in policy terms is that um, his judgment was very conventional, and. Uh, that maybe that can be a good thing, and it's very easy to use the word conventional in a sort of harsh way. But what I mean by that is when uh, General David Petraeus and uh, Jack Keane and and Fred Kagan sort of came up with the ideas of the surge, Powell was by then no longer Secretary of State, and he expressed a kind of skepticism about the surge uh, that was entirely kind of echoed by what you might call the classic establishment, the sort of Lee Hamilton liberal, unsentimentalist liberal, but believing in the use of force, but not believing in this or not believing in that. And, 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 you know, so that the notion of the notion of the surge, which by the way, had components of it from Powell's own famous Powell doctrine, which is, you need to use as much force as you can possibly use to overwhelm 
your enemy and you need to see that there is a direct U.S. interest in this effort in order to commit all sorts of action. Obviously, we had a direct U.S. interest because we were on the verge of losing a war that we had involved ourselves in with untold, you know, with untellable consequences uh, that we had already committed such blood and treasure to. And secondly, that the surge itself fit the criteria of going in with as much force as you possibly could in order to make the in order to succeed in your in your aims. But Powell was very much a creature of that kind of establishmentarian thinking and wasn't able to break out of the box to see that the surge would work. And we should sort of post-date it now to 2021, where suddenly there are articles coming out all over the place about how, you know what, things aren't so terrible in Iraq after everything that went on and how everybody now thinks that it was a terrible war and a big mistake. And there is actually some kind of a semi-functioning on the road to democracy country there that is not discreditable and that is, you know, seeing higher standards of living and more opportunity and more freedom for the people there than anybody would have thought was the case from the way that people talk about the Iraq war now. I just want to say on the the point about um, the, the Pell Doctrine and the surge, uh, there's one aspect of the Powell Doctrine that I think, uh, to be fair, you could say gave him pause regarding the surge, which is that he also stated that there needs to be clear public support for uh, any American military action. And it's, it wasn't certainly wasn't clear at the time that there was overwhelming support for a surge of troops at that point. Uh, among the American public. Also, he, in some sense, betrayed his own doctrine. The doctrine, by the way, was laid out famously for the first Gulf War, not for this, not for the second. And it was a convenient doctrine because it it had within it, it was already it was already sort of poll tested. You need overwhelming support. There was overwhelming support in the United States for action uh, against this wholesale takeover uh, in Kuwait. You needed to be able to commit overwhelming force. Well, we had the largest standing military in the world, and we had a we had a uh, compliant or interested country in Saudi Arabia that was going to let us do whatever we wanted with however many people we wanted. Um, uh, and you know, you were going to overwhelm the 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 army that you were fighting against. And we had like half a I don't know, we had hundreds of thousands of people there and immense numbers of forces, and we did basically destroy the Iraqi military in 100 days in 2003 that none of that was the case we did not have overwhelming support for the war in Iraq though 77 senators voted to to affirm Bush's right to go to war in Iraq it was very much a divided country on on that question and we did not go in with overwhelming force in part because of Turkey's refusal to allow us to send the fourth army down from the north into into Iraq um and even though we we won the war relatively quickly, it was interesting that Powell himself was uh, perfect, seemed to be amenable to violating his own doctrine when push came to shove, because it wasn't really a doctrine. It was a kind of defense of what was going on at the time when he was a Joint Chiefs chairman, and there was a war that he believed we should fight. So he sort of created these, these conditions that uh, were already met. It's like, here are the conditions you need to meet in order to fight war. Oh, look, we, we've met all of them, you know? <laughs> it's like... Well, I mean, how conventional is the Pell Doctrine then if it hasn't been observed for two and a half decades? 
I mean, literally, the overwhelming force doctrine has not been American policy when it comes to executing kinetic missions abroad for a generation. The smallest possible footprint you can possibly get away with is what every president prefers. I, I, think we, I just think we've been fighting unconventional wars for, for a while now. Um, well, but yeah, but why? Well, okay, because no, no, well, because one sort of fair, gets the right. other. So, you know, my, my, my father, Norman Podhoritz, in his book, Why We Were in Vietnam, said the point about Vietnam is that we fought it on the cheap, right? He said we fought it on the military cheap, the strategic cheap, and the political cheap. And essentially, the Powell Doctrine was an effort to address that criticism of and to make sure that Iraq didn't turn into another Vietnam, meaning we weren't going to go in with, you know, advisors and then move on to 10,000 forces and then 15 and then 20 and then ultimately have half a million people in the country. If we we're going to go in, we would go in with a half a million people right there because that's what we, our, our, our advantage, our tactical, structural, and strategic advantage is the size and scope and power of the U.S. military. And so it was, as is always the case when you hear people talk about fighting the last war, Powell Doctrine was an effort to fight the last war, was to tell people this is not another Vietnam. We are going to go in. We are going to. If you remember what he said the night that we went to war there, he said, we're going to surround the Iraqi army. We're going to choke them off, and then we're going to kill them. He said, we're going to kill them. Now, this is interesting because you would never hear that rhetoric. It's 30 years later. You would never hear that rhetoric today even from, from a military man. It was shocking and bracing at the time as well because of its utter lack of sentimentality. It's like, you know, we're going to war. You know what you do in war? You kill the enemy. You kill the enemy until they bend. That's what you do. We spent, you know, 12 years in Vietnam not killing enough of the enemy in such a way that the enemy bent its knee and said, uncle, and I am not going to stand here. I am going to stand here scaring the shit out of the Iraqis. So that they know that when they see us coming, they are gonna they're gonna run away or they're going to they're going to surrender. Um, that I think was his greatest moment. Seriously, I mean, uh, because it was a kind of all right. We're going to war now. The grown-ups are in charge. We're not going to be smiley face and give you a whole. We are going in there to kill as many of them as possible until they say we quit. And 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 it was it was a it was a transformational moment when when he when he did that. Uh and no one has ever spoken that way <laughs> since, I will say. Um it doesn't quite fit the model of Colin Powell the, you know, delightful sunny, you know, wonderful guy who speaks Yiddish and you know all of that that stuff. Christine, your your thoughts? Well, I was actually thinking about uh, two strands of what he represented and, and reveal about how much has changed in just, you know, 20 or 30 years, because um, I'll just say from my own perspective, his his mere existence as a as a powerful figure in a in conservative administrations uh, was helpful to me when I was becoming more conservative, because one of the things all my liberal friends would say is the Republican Party is just a bunch of racist white dudes. And I could look to Colin Powell. I could look, I could look to appointments that were not explicitly done with a lot of fanfare about the identity politics involved, even if there were identity politics involved. You didn't hear about it. It was simply, this is, this is the best person for this job. And 
thinking now to all the recent appointments uh, uh, that Joe Biden has made where everything is explicitly identity politics and, and looking through some of the news postings on social media this morning about Colin Powell, the New York Times, USA Today, it's always Colin Powell, the first black this, the first black that. That's not who he was. I mean, he was uh, officially the first black secretary of state, but it was not how... He, we talked about these things. In a similar vein, his his absolute ruthlessness as a military commander and strategist uh, can't be said today, as as you noted, John. And but there was no pandering. There was a clear definition of what the job was, and and he knew his job and he did it. Now we have a military that that seems to be more politicized in some sense in terms of how it talks to the American people and talks to our leaders about what it is supposed to do. And I'm thinking obviously of like Millie and the others most recently with Afghanistan. And I'm not sure that these things are improvements. The extreme identity politics um, of appointing someone who's not white, a white male, having to constantly praise ourselves for doing that I'm not sure that's an improvement on you know the appointment of someone like a Powell or a Condi Rice or whatnot. Um, and I certainly don't think that the the way that some of our military leaders have been politicized is a good thing either. So let me uh, step back for a second and talk to you about our first sponsor today, uh, Acton. Refugees on border walls, woke celebs and socialist chic, social engineering and COVID lockdowns. It's easy to get wound up over what's happening in our country and in our world. That's why it's time for Acton Unwind, a weekly roundtable discussion tackling current events from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Every Monday, join host Eric Cohn and Acton Institute experts, including Dr. Samuel Gregg, Reverend Robert Sirico, Dr. Stephen Barrows, and more in this weekly audio public square where news, politics, religion, and culture meet for an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. Acton Unwind will explain the news of the week through the Acton Institute's unique perspective, connecting good intentions with sound economics as we work to promote to shape a society that is secure, free, and virtuous, one characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. To subscribe to Acton Unwind, visit acton.org slash commentary or search Acton Unwind on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are available. That's acton.org slash commentary to subscribe. Now I want to talk about, I mean, in part, Christine, when you said that uh, it meant something, that Powell was the guy, uh, this powerful figure, uh, as you were making your own ideological journey. Um, I, I really do want to talk about Powell's book and his life story because it is so, on the one hand, it is so extraordinary, and on the other hand, it's not extraordinary at all. Um, I just want to read one passage from this opening sec section of An American Journey. I have been asked when I first felt a sense of racial identity, when I first understood that I belonged to a minority. In those early years, I had no such sense because on Banana Kelly, which was the name, he was lived on Kelly Street in the South Bronx, and it was because it was curved, it was called Banana Kelly, there was no majority. Everybody was either a Jew, an Italian, a Pole, a Greek, a Puerto Rican, or as we said in those days, a Negro among my boyhood friends were... Victor Ramirez, Walter Schwartz, Manny Garcia, Melvin Klein, 
The Kleins were the first family in our building to have a television set. Every Tuesday night, we crowded into Mel's living room to watch Milton Berle. On Thursdays, we watched Amos and Andy. We thought the show was marvelous. The best thing on television, it was another age, and we did not know that we were not supposed to like Amos and Andy. Racial epithets were hurled around Kelly Street. Sometimes they led to fistfights. But it was not your inferior, I'm better. The fighting was more like avenging an insult to your team. I was eventually to taste the poison of bigotry, but much later and far from Banana Kelly. Now, there's a lot more uh, in this vein, but just to give you a sense of his family's journey, his father, who, as I said, came on a banana boat from Jamaica, ended up working literally a block from where I am speaking at uh, uh, in the garment center for a Jewish-owned garment firm where he worked for 23 years, rose to be head of the shipping department, and his great sorrow and bitterness in his life, his father Luther, was that when the family that owned it retired, he tried to buy the firm or be a participant in the purchase of the firm, was unable to do so, considered that it was possible that this happened because of his race, changed firms and worked at another one for the rest of his for the rest of his uh, career and was mildly bitter, but not horribly bitter. And, uh, and this sort of, there was a sense of the capaciousness of life that Colin Powell had. And consider this, both his parents were immigrants. He was a first generation American, a black kid living in the Bronx, um, uh, went to City College, like so many of the <laughs> famous Jewish kids uh, of New York uh, in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, and and the thing that changed him or put him on a course uh, for his future was joining uh, ROTC, was becoming a member of ROTC uh, that led him in into the military. Um, I'd, my kids in school are being assigned memoirs all the time. That's the new thing you read in school is memoirs of American racial, social, political, and cultural difference. I No one assigned them Colin Powell. No one's assigned them my grandfather's son by, by, by Clarence Thomas. Now, we can say this is all political or whatever. And, of course... That is absolutely true. But it's also that thematically, these are books about how people managed to uh, both uh, remain exactly who they were and who they were supposed to be and to maintain their sense of their own identity, their connection to their past, their connection to their family, their connection to their to their roots, and to forage, uh, to forge ahead and create a new life in an America f- full of possibilities for them if they were able to take advantage of them, if they could show the self-discipline, if they could show the sense of purpose, and if they could show a sense of determination that would not allow the bigots and the hostile people and the ugly, uglier sides of our culture to paralyze them with a feeling of humiliation or defeat. 
as I say, my kids aren't reading these memoirs. I don't know who is. I don't know if anybody is. It's a real sad thing that they're not. And we can tell why they're not. Well, there's also arguably, not arguably, I believe that he, his experience, as he described it, you know, we, we live in the era where lived experience is, is, is given all this weight, right? His actual lived experience gives him a more sophisticated and realistic understanding of how race works in this country than anything coming out of Ibram X. Kendi's pen or mouth. He had this experience. The the idea that, you know, his description of fighting with kids of other racial or ethnic backgrounds as being teens, the implication there is they outgrew that kind of, of behavior. Whereas I think what a lot of identity politics does today is encourage that, you know, you're on different teams. If you, if that team wins, you lose. It's much more simplistic. And I, I do think that the repeated calls over, over the past few decades for, for someone like Colin Powell or Colin Powell himself to step up and run for, for the presidency, for example, were, were kind of tapping into that feeling like here's someone whose story is so deeply American, but also so deeply nuanced. And he has an understanding of how uh, all of these racial and, and class currents. Also, we should talk about class as well. I mean, he comes from, you know, they work their way up. He worked his way up. That's a, that's something that Americans can see themselves in. And I do think a lot of our identity and certainly our racial politics these days encourages us to do just the opposite. I mean, you know, such memoirs could constitute a university level course in itself, you know, a collection of them. Uh, re- reading uh, w- with this sort of, you know, asking these types of questions and, and uh, deriving this sort of understanding. If there's, if there are any brave professors out there, you know, listening, they should, they should, they should put it together and, 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 and you know, let yourself be called a, a racist for, for teaching the memoirs uh, of, of black Americans who who did great things and and also black black americans and not just black minority right but minority americans of any stripe um and again i i this is now the second time or third time i'm actually going to mention my my father on this podcast but my father uh wrote a book called making it he later wrote a book called my love affair with america and making it is a story of the of what it means to be an American who embraces the idea that you can be a success in in the United States despite the modest or humble circumstances from which you come. And what he calls the brutal bargain that that sometimes imposes on you in which you, like Pip and Great Expectations, uh, become a member of a class different from the class into which you were born not a different family not a different but where your what where your wants and expectations and desires and the things that are important to you are radically different from those that motivated your your parents or your grandparents all of whom were living much more simply to survive than they were to thrive or to fulfill ambitions and destinies and things like that. It is a very complicated story. It is not some kind of Lee Greenwood anthem of triumph, you know, vulgar and, you know, there's tragedy involved here and there's pain and there's and there's regret and there's guilt and there are all those things that 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 play a role but all of which uh, and and the sorts of things that make America a great and complicated country, but it is not that America un, America somehow 
stacks the deck against its ordinary people compared to any other country in the history of this planet on the in the history of this earth this is the country that 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 does le- less and to stack the deck and does more to unstack the deck than any than anything ever has or ever will and yet we are moving inexorably into a place in which the theory is the deck is always stacked so the thing to do now is to restack the deck and therefore and therefore privilege people who feel like the deck was stacked against them before and then privilege their children and grandchildren against the people for whom the deck was stacked previously. And one of the only things that Powell talks about in this book in terms of social, very gentle social criticism is he says, what was the key to him getting where he got in some ways, given all kinds of distractions and possibilities and things like that, was that he was raised, lived, and came from an intact family. And an intact extended family that lived nearby, that created this kind of rich, thick life that provided the platform from which the solid foundation and the platform from which he could then climb the greasy pole, the Disraeli greasy pole. Um, and that is a real thing. And it is a terrible tragedy that, that is increasingly not only being denied, but, but, but that that entire idea is now coming under such horrendous attack. Now, let me talk to you about aura, our second sponsor today. The way you use the internet has changed dramatically over the last decade, but security tools have mostly stayed the same. Aura provides complete digital security to help protect your online accounts, finances, and more. All in one easy-to-use app. With Aura, you'll get alerted to fraud and threats fast. Like if your online accounts or passwords were leaked online, or if someone tries to open a bank account in your name. Look, between your photos, finances, devices, and connections, your world is more online than ever. You may have security systems in place for real life, but what about your online life? Aura can sound the alarm if your digital presence is at risk. Every 10 seconds, somebody becomes a victim of fraud or identity theft. What's worse, 23% of those people don't get their money back after the attack. If you think it could never happen to you, you could be their next target. Aura can help. It's easy to set up. All plans come with $1 million in identity theft insurance to help recover your stolen funds and experience U.S.-based customer support that's got your back. Aura is a new type of security service that protects all of your online information and devices with one simple subscription. And with an easy online dashboard and alerts sent straight to your phone, Aura keeps you in control and guides you through solving any issues for a limited time. Aura is offering our listeners up to 40% off plans when you visit Aura.com slash commentary. Go to Aura.com slash commentary to get complete protection and savings of up to 40%. That's A-U-R-A dot com slash commentary. Okay, I'm going to call an audible and ask you guys, I'm going to give you guys a topic pick. Okay. We can talk about Superman, or we can talk about Katie Couric. Oh, you're really stacking the deck here. Come okay. on. Okay. <laughs> Who do you want to talk about, Superman or Katie Couric? Maybe we can do both, but I'm not sure. Superman. Yeah, All right, it's got to be Superman. Okay, so I'm, what we're not going to talk about is bisexual Superman. That was the big news last week. Well, was the, the DC, you're out. Okay, you want to talk about bisexual. DC 
is going to have a the son of Clark Kent and Lois Lane, uh, uh, who is apparently the new Superman in some iteration of the multiverse, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, blah, blah. By the way, the comic books don't sell anymore, so it doesn't really matter. This is all just a publicity stunt. But so he's going to be bisexual. Congratulations. It, it's not he's not Clark. Clark Kent is not becoming bisexual. It's his son who is bisexual, the bisexual Superman. I don't want to talk about that. We're moving off that. That is not that is not what is of interest to me. What is of interest to me was the news that DC is changing the um the plot i don't know how to describe it the what would you call it the uh the tagline the tagline the, tagline, the slogan for the man of steel standing for quote truth justice and the american way dc comics the longtime publisher now says the man of steel stands for truth justice and a better tomorrow the change reflects a broader, more global vision for the world of Superman. Jim Lee, DC's creep, chief creative officer, I said creep, which is interesting, chief creative officer and publisher said Sunday during the company's virtual DC fandom event, to better reflect the storylines that we are telling across DC and to honor Superman's incredible legacy over 80 years of building a better world, Superman's motto is evolving. Superman has long been a symbol of hope who inspires people, and it is that optimism and hope that powers him forward with this new mission statement. Okay. The mission statement sounds like a ride at Disney World in Tomorrowland. Like, it's very generic. It's very... I I mean, the first thought I had actually wasn't that they were trying to be more PC, but that they're trying to eliminate the tie to the United States so that they can sell Superman to China. I don't know. That was was one instinct. But um, this idea that we had... That's a good thought. Superman has to become a UN-style global citizen. You miss a lot of what makes Superman Superman, in my opinion. But I am not a comic book super fan, so... You're, You're probably right, but there is a communist superman isn't there i mean it's not like i'm a big comics guy but i'm vaguely familiar with this soviet superman that all i remember is like the sort of snl sketch universe. is the snl sketch about what if what if superman's capsule had landed in germany in the 1930s and then he would have become uberman Dan Aykroyd is Uberman. So, I mean, that was all, that's always kind of like the problem with Superman is, you know, solely entirely due to an accident of the fact that the capsule lands, you know, in Kansas as opposed to in the middle of the ocean, which is likely where it would have landed 70% of the Earth's surface being covered by water. But he lands at a nice farm. Then he would have been Aquaman, John. <laughs> yes, with Ma and Pa Kent and then is raised. Now, I'm not a comic book person. Noah's not a comic book person. So I'm not going to talk about the history of what, it, you know, it had Superman 311. He actually becomes Chinese and then there's this. and there, But I, I, think, I think Christine's absolutely right that what this is about is a kind of idiot uh, – Forget the forget the, the the politics of it. That there is a desperate effort to universalize and internationalize intellectual product, right? IP to make it as inoffensive as possible for the largest number of people, so that these closed markets controlled by totalitarians, i.e., China, the second largest market in the world, will be friendly to you. 
Um, and if we are headed toward more conflict with China, having Superman representing the you know truth, justice in the American way might be the kind of thing that China could use as a pretext to keep your fifth iteration of a bad Superman movie, uh, Batman versus Superman, having been maybe the worst movie I've ever seen in the course of my entire life. Uh, so I'm sure they're going to do it again. They keep making bad ones. There was there were two good ones 40 years ago, and then every other Superman movie is terrible. So they're going to make something, and they don't want Superman to cause the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party to say, I'm sorry, you can't come into China, which is happening to Disney now. So there are two, there are two movies Disney has made very interesting, right? One is Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which is the biggest hit of the year, and is actually a really good superhero movie, and is about a Chinese character. And then there is The Eternals, a giant superhero movie coming out in three weeks, that was given to a, an indie filmmaker named Chloe Zhao to direct. Chloe Zhao, uh, who made tiny little movies and then gets this huge thing. And part of the reason I think Disney decided they wanted to give Chloe Zhao this movie is that her name is Chloe Zhao. She was born in China. She came to the United States and, uh, Bob Iger, the head of the, the, the now head CEO, but was, was the uh, create, you know, sort of the guy who was running Disney for 17, 18 years was very high on how much, how incredibly well he did expanding Disney into China. There's Shanghai Disneyland and Disney this and Disney that, and they changed Mulan around so that it wouldn't be offensive, and they allowed Mulan to be filmed just three feet from the Chinese version of Auschwitz, which is really great for the American conscience and all of that. Uh, but Chloe Zhao somebody uncovered an interview with Chloe Zhao from 2010 in a small magazine in which she criticized China's treatment of Hong Kong and its general treatment of, you know, uh, you know, it's creative artists and things like that. And said, this is a regime that lies. And Disney is sitting there with these two movies, like in the, in the neutral zone waiting to see if they're going to be released into this gigantic market or whether China is going to make it impossible for them to be seen there. And every other entertainment country in the world is watching this and thinking, what can I do to suck up the way Bob Iger sucked up before 2015 when President Xi decided he was going to re-totalitarianize China? Uh, the commercial pressures are obvious and they're affecting every major industry that wants into this market. And they're all bending over backwards to advance Chinese narratives, dubious Chinese narratives. I'm sure that's to uh, explains a lot of this, but not all of it, because most likely, just like every other entertainment venue or intellectual venue, this <laughs> successor ideology has taken over, has become something you have to pay obeisance to if you want to advance within the industry, if you want your if you want your career to advance, if you want your product to see the market, um, it's just the sort of thing you have to do. Why wouldn't this be a genuine effort to get right with the ideological mandates that pertain today? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, that that's the first thing I thought of was that this is another um, attempt to puncture the American mythos. You know, I mean, silly as you know as it is, and 
and and the the chance landing in 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 Kansas, you know, notwithstanding, uh, Superman has become part of part of the American mythos, and 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 the country needs its national myths. I mean that that's 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 part of what you know informs the, people who they are. The social justice movement has always consumed itself with pop culture, and you know obsesses over particularly comic books. In my first book, there's a a, a, a big chunk of it is on how they attempt to, you know, uh, leverage their influence to change the narratives in comic books, because this movement is composed primarily of children. Uh, and they focus a lot on their, on their childhoods and the, the stuff that they liked when they were young. And that, and it's, it has incredible weight that they, they uh, attach to it as though it's, you know, it's, it's a small movement that affects the, you know, a broader currents of subculture and eventually becomes culture. And they're not wrong about that, frankly, uh, even though it's, you know, they're, they're, obsessions are generally pop cultural and, and aren't are impervious to politics as we understand it. But um, this is the sort of thing that I, that I think probably fits within that rubric. And uh, to the extent that it's commercially viable, it is because people like them support it and endorse it, even though they might not necessarily buy comic books, but then people like us resent it, talk about it more and you get this general cycle of publicity that even if it's negative is good for the product. And that I, I like this. I like this uh, argument Noah's making because uh, those of us who came of age with Christopher Reeve as Superman in the series of movies, um, if you recall in those movies, I mean, a lot of the publicity for it shows him standing in front of American flag. He flies around with an American flag, you know, throughout these movies. It's very much a, a very patriot. He's supposed to be the embodied superhero version of American patriotism. And and when he fights other people like the, the you know Neil Bavor Zod group, you know, they are definitely seen as invaders, foreigners coming to America to threaten our way of life. So it's very patriotic, at least in terms of how it was portrayed in the 80s uh, under Christopher Reeves uh, cape, as they say. Um, Superman, of course, the creation of two teenage Jewish boys from Cleveland, Siegel and Schuster. They were 17 years old. And the, you know, there are 10 billion different cultural examinations of the history of American popular culture that lay out the question of what this story actually is, right? Which is, it is a story about a nerdy guy hiding his light under a bushel in order to be able to preserve not only his normal life, but the normal life of the world in which he lives, right? I mean, he Clark Kent is Superman, prefers to live as Clark Kent, wants to be, doesn't want anybody to know that he is Superman. This is a classic coded story, immigrant story, getting back to Colin Powell. Thing about America is that it does not require you, in fact, to be Clark Kent. <laughs> you can be Superman. That's the Colin Powell story. You can become a war hero and a and a and a person who refuses to run for the office of presidency that you might well win because of all kinds of reasons. I mean, a set of Powell that he didn't run uh, to some extent because his wife Alma believed that he would be assassinated if he attempted to try is there a is there a universe in which colin powell following along the lines of of um of of ross pro as a true outsider could have even though he was never really an outsider but an outsider of politics could have lapped bob dole won the 
Republican nomination for president in 1996 and beat Bill Clinton for the presidency, absolutely that world exists. Um, and he chose not to do so, but that was a choice, right? That's the, that's the interesting coded aspect of this. And I culturally, this is a moment for reflection. Like for 40 years now, we have been talking about where is the conservative pop culture? Where is it? Like it doesn't exist. And, you know, and the people say, oh, you see, Hollywood knows if, if it could really make money from this, it would and doesn't want to and all of that. Um. And then, you know, you have TV shows that sort of appeal to a conservative audience. Uh, Now, the number two or three show, after 11 years on television, on CBS's Blue Bloods, this New York City cop show with Tom Selleck uh, as the police commissioner and uh, his his father and his kids, and they're all involved in the justice system. Um, And it's another sort of ripped from the headlines like Law and Order thing, except that it's right wing. It is a right wing show, whereas Law and Order is a left wing show. And it is now wildly more popular than Law and Order as it gets older. And there are these shows. They exist. They always have existed. There are movies that do really well, even though they're they're you know, they're conservative, though people it shocks Hollywood. But I'm telling you right now, if we have a culture now that is defiantly not only sort of going anti-American, because the culture went anti-American in the 1970s, but is downgrading the importance of America in a desperate hunt for marketplace position in China, our friend Ben Shapiro, who is making his first movie uh, as part of the Daily Wire universe with Gina Carano, the, the mixed martial arts fighter who got canceled by Disney uh, because I think she said she didn't think that transgender, you know, transgender athletes should be allowed to compete in, you know, in 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 sports and the in their chosen genders. It was that was I think that was her issue. Disney fired her from the Mandalorian because she said this, and so uh, Ben is now making a movie with her. Uh, that's very on the nose to make a movie with her because she got canceled by Disney, but. Um, if Superman is no longer a tribune for the United States in a in a in a more complex world, you're damn right there could be a real conservative culture. I, I don't know how it. I don't counter importantly counterculture, but, but it's a counterculture that becomes the main culture, which right. is what happens with countercultures. This is very important to me because this is the project I'm going to engage in all next year, <clears throat> and I hope you're right that there is a a big market space for the stuff that you aren't allowed to say in polite company, not because it's transgressive or because it's impolite or marks you as, you know, an an impertinent person, but because it's true and that sort of, and, and, and also entertaining and enjoyable. And it sends up the right people, the people who are making mockeries of themselves by being so self-serious. That is something that I hope you're absolutely right about because that's exactly what I'm trying to promote next year i mean i i think what is so interesting about this moment and the the possibility that you that you're talking about about an opportunity for there to be an actual um uh for there to be successful conservative cultural products is that for decades now what conservative or right-wing attempts at pop culture have looked like um have been sort of bad imitations of liberal pop culture and they always fall short 
right? So all starring, all starring Kirk Cameron. I just want to put that out there. there. Or Ricky right. Schroeder, like yeah. that. Yeah. Or at some point, wasn't there even a Fox comedy show or something? A very short-lived Fox comedy show that 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 yeah was, uh, was supposed to be, yeah. But oh, so yeah. so but the but one of the crucial differences now is that two things have happened. Um, the first being that um, liberal popular culture has become um, so scolding and self-serious and not funny that no one is looking to imitate it anymore. And on the right, somewhere in conservative circles, a kind of sensibility, a pop sensibility has organically um, arisen among people who, who are not, let's let's say they're not necessarily uh, right wing, but they are they are still sort of um, figures uh, associated with the right, such as Joe Rogan or uh, all the comics. Um, there is an organic kind of view of the world that is compelling and interesting and entertaining that is already very popular on the right. You know, traditionally the idea was that uh, liberals were sort of loose. And therefore, and fluid, and therefore they could do all the interesting things in the culture, whereas conservatives were stiff and buttoned up. Uh, but oh, but they're gonna they're gonna loosen up to 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 take a stab at at you know making this this thing. That is no longer the case, and, and it's that, not, that 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 makes it interesting. It's right. not conventionally conservative either. I mean, you're not talking about policy positions. It's right. just the, a lot of these people are are very out liberals, you know, very proud liberals and support, you know, liberal cultural causes, social causes and, and political objectives. They just also don't subscribe to this totalitarian idea that is very fluid. The totalitarian idea is hard to comport with because it changes hour by hour. Um, and yeah, that's the sort of thing that could be very attractive. Also, we talked about this before. The, the new ideology doesn't allow for moral ambiguity. So the characters that you write are very stilted and boring. And naturally, if you're interested in good writing, good dialogue, well-developed characters, it's going to be subversively anti-woke. I mean, look, people have been saying this for decades. I'm saying that the market opportunity that has been created here is a kind of uh, flight from sanity. Once again, we're in the, what are you people crazy? The person who owns Superman is now saying Superman doesn't stand for the American way. Like, why don't you take the gun and shoot yourself in the other foot and then shoot your elbow while you're at it and then shoot yourself in the head? Like, this is, this is, this is cultural, this is suicide. You are destroying your own product in pursuit of something you're probably not going to get. And that kind of opening that kind of market opening is something it would be very weird if it were not filled by a different source. Uh, let me talk about another market opening. Uh, that market opening being the market for discussions about meritocracy and the need for meritocracy, something that no one uh, is really all that interested in doing right or left. Dan Senor on his great podcast, Post Corona, this week interview, interviews Adrian Wooldridge, um, famous British journalist, co-author of Alan, Alan Greenspan's uh, last book, various other uh, historical products, and, and, and Adrian has just published a book in defense of meritocracy in which he says meritocracy is the secret sauce of Western civil, of the last 250 years of Western civilization, that the idea of creating means and methodologies by which people of modest circumstances like Colin Powell can rise to the top 
through a system of uh, efforts to uh, make it clear who among the entire vast population of this country and of the West is of exceptional merit and can therefore uh, create the conditions for innovations in business, innovations in organization, political innovations, and the like, uh, that uh, this is a this was a new feature of the world that was really uh, uh, born of the American Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, uh, and 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 the rise of uh, individual freedoms. This is a system that needs to be defended and supported, and uh, is under attack in a way that will hamper uh, every aspect of the West that has led us to this, you know, astonishing uh, three centuries of prosperity. So that is Dan Siener's con- conversation with Adrian Wildridge on his podcast, Post-Corona. Go to Apple, Google, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Download this one. I love this podcast. I love this podcast in particular, Dan Senor, Adrian Woldridge, post-corona, and we thank them for sponsoring the Commentary Podcast. Very quickly, we we can do a little bit on Katie Couric. Uh, Katie Couric has a book coming out tomorrow. It's been the talk of the media for two and a half weeks. Uh, this woman knows how to sell a product. Uh, there's apparently a lot of stuff in there about how nasty she was to other women coming up and and how she never saw anything wrong with Matt Lauer and I, whatever. I know there's a lot of stuff in there that has been used. Uh, that means this book is going to sell a billion copies on Amazon when it comes out tomorrow and will be number one. Uh, but the big news that came out last week was her saying so flatly that she interviewed Ruth Bader Ginsburg in 2016. Ruth Bader Ginsburg attacked Colin Kaepernick and the people who took a knee uh, in football games to protest American racism in a tone of grave offense about how they were doing this country down. And Katie Couric edited that part of the interview out because she wanted to protect Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she said. Christine? Yeah, this this just struck me. It, it, for me, it was another data point in, in what this, the notorious RBG rebranding that happened very late in her life by young progressives uh, had to paper over about Justice Ginsburg, which is that she was a classic old school liberal. She, she was on the record about thinking Roe v. Wade was bad law. She was on the record about a lot of classically liberal ideas that no longer comport with the young progressive left. So they just pretended it didn't happen. It was interesting to me that Katie Couric, responding to whatever market pressure she felt at the time, thought she had to protect Justice Ginsburg from herself. Because there were, we were talking about this a little bit before we started taping, and as Noah noted, like lots of people were making the argument that Justice Ginsburg made in this interview. But for for a doyen of the mainstream media to feel like, oh dear, she I I don't want I don't want her being attacked by by people on the left for saying this, to not include that in the interview, again, this is another example of how ideology prevents the media from giving people, the American public, informing them in a nuanced and interesting way that might have started some conversations. They shut that down and make it very clear. This is moralizing. She's, well, Justice, she, Gins, Justice Ginsburg herself said this on the record at the time. I mean, yes. it's not as though this was a, a secret. She had said, you know, that she thought it was dumb. And then she was forced to apologize publicly to Colin Kaepernick but for being dismissive. 
of the, you know, the, 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 the genuine emotion that is, that is on display on the field here, but she thought it was stupid at the time, said as much, had a controversy around it. So the resurrection of this controversy certainly serves some commercial purposes on, on Katie Couric's part, but it's not like it's new news. Katie Couric's behavior is news. Justice Ginsburg's behavior is not. Because she wasn't doing it to protect Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was doing it to protect Colin Kaepernick. Let's get this straight. She says she was doing it because she felt that, you know, and obviously she's sort of confessing to it because she feels bad now or whatever it is you want to talk about, right? But what it was, was she didn't want to contribute to the, you know, to, to the criticism of Colin Kaepernick by having, you know, one of the five most prominent American liberal figures come out in an interview with her saying this is un-American and he should be ashamed of himself and this country has done a lot for people like me and like him. So that's the misunderstanding here. It is that Katie Couric was defending, it was doing this to create, to literally shut down the possibility that something that she did would make news because she didn't want it to make news. But because be she would get in trouble. She would get in trouble when she went to Michael's. Not uh, and and the Ivy. Not that Ruth Bader Ginsburg would get into trouble. Abe, I'm sorry. Okay, wait, but, I'm sorry. I, mean, I just I just want to point out many of our listeners, like me, heard Michael's and thought, oh, the craft store. You mean a very uh, she I mean a restaurant, restaurant yes. on 55th Street in New <laughs> York. You. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> not Michael's. That. Yeah, it's, yeah, not not the not the uh yeah, not the secular hobby lobby. Go ahead, Abe. Sorry. Um but she would get in trouble uh, both ways at Michael's. I mean the the thing about the the revelation, if if, if as Noah points out, it wouldn't be much of a revelation, but um, is that it tarnishes two heroes on on her side among those on her side, right? Uh, it calls it calls Kaepernick's actions into question, and it it raises a question mark over uh, Ginsburg as as this this leftist hero, right, guys. Um... Our last sponsor is our friend David Bonson at the Bonson Group, that $3 billion financial management and services firm. Um, and I've been telling you about his newsletters, the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com. Um, I just wanted to give you just a little taste of dividendcafe.com from the one that he put out on Friday, uh, some of his thoughts on bubbles. Uh, so I'm just going to quote here. He says, when everyone takes for granted that something just can't be overpriced, that is prima facie reason to start being skeptical. Another way of putting this, crowd optimism, confidence, and euphoria are not confirming indicators of price legitimacy. They are cause for skepticism. Excess crowd euphoria usually means you're in the sixth or seventh inning, though, not the ninth. Those last few innings of crowd euphoria are where disciplined, value-conscious investors are most tested. Anytime you hear anything remotely sounding like it's different now or valuations, cash flows, fundamentals don't matter anymore, be very, very nervous. The hubris of people who lack any economic foundation or true north is worse than their subpar intelligence. Excess stability leads to market instability. Complacency sets in over time and market distortions become invisible as a result. There is no reason to root for something to be in a bubble. This is not personal. The type of person who cheers someone else losing money is an unattractive personality. 
My opinions of hot tech or frothy valuation spots in the market is not aspirational. It is an objective one based on past experience. It is also absolutely forever and ever not something I care to time. Timing is very difficult. So that is the kind of uh, common sense you get from DividendCafe.com. Go there. Subscribe to that in the DCToday.com from the Bonson Group. The antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial management and services industry. So there was so much more to talk about Chinese missile tests and Supreme Court uh, commission findings. And we'll try to talk about those tomorrow. Uh, but for now, uh, speaking for truth, justice, and the American way, I am John Podhoritz uh, here with Abe, Christine, and Noah, and we are keeping the candle burning.